0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Carter, and Premier Sponsor Q and Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at Cutter Economic Welcome
1: to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg
1: Markets podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com podcast. Turning stories, as Bailey was just uh, talking about, it's on the retailers. It's Target. It's TJX. Uh, some decent numbers kind of in line, I guess you'd call it, but definitely some a cautious outlook. So let's kind of get a sense of what that means for these retailers and what it means for the consumer overall. So we're going to table this thing with a couple of smart voices. Jen Bartashis, Senior Industry Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, she joins us, as does Bloomberg Macro Strategist Vince Signorella, uh, both on the phone here. So, Jen, let's start with you here. What's your takeaway from a couple of big retailers, uh, Target and TJX?
3: Yes, yeah, so good morning, Paul. Um, you know, really the takeaway is, is that there's no news maybe good news actually in this market in that uh, everybody understands that the consumer discretionary spending is continuing to soften. Um, I think that one of the things um, that we're looking at with Target is how well they're going to be able to manage that. And one of the positives this morning was really about how they've reduced their inventory and they seem to be positioned to be able to respond a little bit more quickly than they have historically to changes in that consumer spending.
4: Well, Jen, the inventory story seemed to be this overhang for both Target and TJ Maxx for the entirety of last year. Is that problem in the past now, or is there any remnants of it?
3: Really that pattern, that, 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 that problem is, is really in the past, I think. Um, both of the retailers have really reduced their inventory, especially in critical areas. So, um, for example, with Target, their inventory is down 16%, but it's down 25% in discretionary categories. Um, And TJX has also really worked to to offload the excess inventory that they had. So across the board, I think in the retail space, um, inventory is is really pretty well positioned as we go into the summer months and, more importantly, into the critical back-to-school and back-to-college seasons, uh, which it's hard to talk about already, but it is just around the corner.
1: My last back-to-college. Starting, starting to fall after four. This is my fourth and last. Thank goodness. Um, Vince Signorella, i um, love to get your thoughts here. What are you hearing out there on the street? You know, we, hear, we see these retailers today, and they're, uh, to me, reasonably cautious. That's, that drives with some of the eco data we, we've seen there. What are you hearing out there as it relates to the consumer, inflation? How's everybody doing?
5: uh... everybody's sort of so-so to be honest i mean I, I i think the interesting point when you're talking about the retailers and you're talking about reducing inventories uh, think about just a short time ago we were talking um supply chain imbalances and people couldn't get product Um, one of the things that's troubling in and i think just the whole economic space and what people are talking about is the huge surge in consumer credit outstanding uh we're seeing very large uh consumer credit balances uh it's it's positive for the the credit card companies And when you see big gains for people like mastercard amex etc and visa um you know in, in normal times that's a positive but in times like this i think we look at that as a negative and that uh, consumers are stretched in terms of disposable income vis-a-vis inflation, and more and more purchases are being uh, basically uh, bought on time, if you will. And that's that's just borrowing from economic growth in the future. And, you know, I, I, I think markets and traders are still thinking um, that we are potentially going to see a recession before this year's out.
4: Vince, following up on that story, the the timeline here is really interesting because, and Jen, correct me if I'm wrong here, but both Home Depot and Target kind of said, look, we're expecting some sort of pullback in the consumer. It's not here yet, but it's coming. And it's, it feels like it's a narrative we've heard for the last year or so. In terms of timing, Vince, um, we know a lot of people are pricing in that final economic recession by the end of the year, but where are the signs of the consumer pullback?
5: Well, uh, I mean, we're naturally not seeing them in, in, um, uh, I mean, if you look across the board, you look at the housing market, especially in the tri-state area, it's off the charts um, where there's no inventory. So uh, pricing, is it's totally a seller's market. People are paying well above ask and they're continuing to do that simply just to to get a home. We're not seeing uh, inventory because of high interest rates. So in a way, You know, I am a major critic of the Fed because I, I think they've totally missed the whole idea of monetary policy. Just raising interest rates without reducing money is nothing more than changing the price of money. It's not actually reducing demand. So that money is still out there and the consumers are still spending but I think we're getting to a point where they're reaching the end of their rope. And until we get to that point, we're not going to see the pullback in spending that, you know, that, the, that people are talking about. Um, you know, when that happens, uh, timing is everything, but I, I wouldn't dare to try to to call it um, necessarily and say it's the end of this year or early next year or whatever, but it does come. Eventually it does come. You run out of, you just run out of places where you have income to spend. Jen,
1: both T T J X and Target called out, as have other, other retailers recently, the, the rise in shrink. What is shrink, and, and how, how, is, how problematic is it for the retailers?
3: Yeah, so shrink is, is really loss of goods, either due to theft or damage, um, and it's really as simple as that, and it's, it's an, an issue that has always been around retail, but has been amplified um, significantly, in the last um, year or so, um, and we've actually even heard retailers like Kroger talk about, um, you know, retail shrink and theft of, you know, of, of actual retail gangs coming in and stealing products. It, it's something that is has is always there because you know people you know pocket things as they're in the stores, but when people are under economic stress. Um, it sort of leads an opening leaves an opening to an increase in theft. Uh, and that's what we're seeing across the industry.
4: When we talk about the theft story though, Jen, I mean what what is what's driving that exactly? Because hasn't target always kind of had this issue to some extent?
3: Well, all retailers have this issue to some extent. it's 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 a matter of how well it's being managed. Um, and and when you think about, you know where the consumer sits, especially consumers who shop in the the lower to mid-tier stores. Um, they've seen their discretionary income start to be under more pressure. Um, and it it lends itself to more of that um, that type of theft um, than we see when people have freer spending capabilities. Um, and it is something that is it, it goes in cycles. And we've seen it in the past uh, with retail when we were in other recessionary type environments. Um, and so it's nothing new. Uh, but it is a, a new issue, and it's remarkable in Target's respect in that they're calling out a $500 million potential impact to profit this year.
1: Yeah, that's that's a number that kind of jumps out at me. Hey, Vince, uh, what are the next data points that you'll be looking for that the market's really focusing on, do you believe? You know, not not a
5: lot this week, uh, unfortunately, for us to really get our hands on. Um, you know, we're, we get the usual uh, jobless claims weekly number. Uh, Philly Fed is probably going to be interesting following uh, what we saw in New York uh, home sales, I don't think anyone's expecting any any major surprises. I, I think until we get to the FOMC minutes uh, on the 24th, um, there's there's nothing amazingly substantial. I think to to really shift market sentiment, it's all going to be give and take. And when I'm watching markets now, it's you know we're just we're in a bit of a seesaw trend. It's it's simply. Feels like the day traders are ruling uh, the roost and just uh, just moving things back and forth and, and just taking uh, taking advantage of intraday trends, but we're not seeing a really good feel. I think for a market trend, I think it's, that's going to come hopefully with with the statement that follows the FOMC, and maybe they'll give us that word that everyone's looking for, which is pause. Right. The P word, the pause word, okay.
1: All right, Jen Bartashis, a senior industry analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, and Vince Signorella, a Bloomberg Macro Strategist, thanks you guys for stepping in here, talking about uh, these big retailers starting report earnings. We've got Walmart tomorrow, so I'm sure we'll be talking to Jen again about that. We had TJ Maxx and Target reporting today. Um, you know, cautious uh, that that's that's the word there.
0: The countdown has begun this May. A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City, Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
6: You're listening to The team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Pretty, it seems
1: like we kind of joke about this that... Every company in every industry, what did they all talk about on their conference calls? AI. I mean, you're a dog make dog food maker. You're talking AI and how that's going to drive your business. I think it's a scam approaching scam like levels, but how does it apply to investing? Our next guest can help us out there. Hugh Roberts head of analytics at quant insight. The name says it all Hugh. I got to ask you AI it's all over the place. How does it apply if at all? to investing. You're the guy to ha- have an answer, I think.
7: Yeah, well, we think it massively does. The the, the key difference to what we do is we don't have a kind of a, a large language model. It's obviously making all the hype around chat, GBT, BARD and all the others. Um, so we've not gone down the natural language processing route. Instead, we've used the the smart machine and just basically trained it on a range of financial securities, single stocks, equity indices. Yields, FX crosses, and the like, and the macro environment. Because the problem with macro, more often than not, is not that we we don't know what the mysterious X factor is that's driving 10-year yields or dollar yen or spoos. It's that we don't know what the right pattern and the right jigsaw is. You know, are FX trading off interest rate differentials? Are spoons trading off the the strength or weakness of the dollar? You know, it's it's putting the different moving parts of growth, inflation, financial conditions, risk appetite together in the right order. And that's exactly what AI can help with. So AI can help, um, but not necessarily the natural language processing, the LLM models, more just using to train it on smart data, on understanding the patterns of association between financial markets and the broader macro environment.
4: Does that apply to every asset class, though? I mean... Or is this just a a stock market kind of thing?
7: Uh, Well, we train it on everything, um, but it's a really fair question because obviously you do see discrepancies within that. So sometimes, you know, commodities get driven exclusively by a supply squeeze, in which case, you know, you've got to get into the weeds in terms of. You no know, is it a weather event that that 's uh, impacting crop production levels, for example, or within the equity space you know there are certain sectors, and I think even the most bottom up company fundamental guy would acknowledge a macro place they're typically the interest rate sensitive sectors like finance like housing um, etc, uh, or even growth versus value. Thinking about the level that bond yields play in that kind of style allocation. But then we'd be the first to admit, you know, if you're talking about um, a new biotech stock um, where it, you know, come up with a new prescriptive drug of some kind and it's about their R&D capabilities, it's about their ability to patent it so they can monetize it properly, then that's obviously more idiosyncratic. So there are variances across um, the, the entire kind of capital market structure. But if you think about it, what financial asset is completely impervious to inflation, the Fed, financial conditions, yep. risk appetite. These are, these are just truisms in our life.
1: So, Hugh, right now, what are some of the data points, data sets that you guys at Quant Insights are, are really focusing on now?
7: Yeah, so what we're noticing is, is a little bit of a um, regime change uh, for U.S. equity markets. I um, mean, it, it's a little bit self-evident because obviously the narrative has been out there for, for, for some time, but we're seeing that while everyone's talking obviously you know, all these amazing stats about apple being the size of the russell 2000 or half dozen stocks explain the entire performance for 2023 um and you can ascribe that to ai you can ascribe it to a little bit of safe haven status and also maybe the move in yields as the bond market starts to discount an easier fed you've got to be more nuanced than that we would argue if you're actually trading this stuff so it's not actually the level of um, bond yields that is driving. Uh, U.S. tech stocks on our models, it's actually A, the shape of the yield curve, and B, bond vol interest rate volatility, that is more important. And what we're finding at the moment is that the move lower, we actually use swaps and vol rather than the move index, but the move index tends to be more well known. The fall in the move index over the last month or so has been a huge tailwind. That's been a positive, and that's raising model value for Spooz, NASDAQ, XLK, all this stuff. Um, A steeper yield curve is also a big tailwind, and that's helping move um, model value higher. Against that, given that we finally feel this is the most eagerly anticipated recession in a long time, and it feels like everyone's been waiting for it, but the data in the last month or so has felt like it is starting to roll over a bit at the margin, um, both in the States and Europe and China. Um, And that's been a headwind to macro-warranted fair value for all this stuff, so what we do is obviously balance up the tailwinds and the headwinds, and at the moment the moves in the bond market are more than offsetting um, the, 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 the negative drag from growth, the negative drag from inflation expectations. But the trouble is, is that markets have moved, equity markets have moved ahead of that. So we've got the Nasdaq, for example, about five percent rich um, to where it should be at the moment. So the good news is macro warranted, macro momentum is moving higher, but the, the health warning is markets ahead of
4: itself well it's interesting that we say the markets ahead of itself when it's kind of been stuck range bound for for, for two for two months now how much of the kind of carnage of last year is uh, almost a tailwind as well to to the stock market this year around, even as we're staring at a recession does it is it just up from here
7: yeah I think that's really fair comment at, at least for justifying price action in January. I mean, it did feel like a lot of last year's losers, the ones that got beaten up the most, um, did see a reallocation towards them at the beginning of the year. And I think that's a really fair comment. And there is flow evidence to back that up as well. But it, it has to be more than that. When you look at the price action, um, I think what started off as a 2022 losers reallocating into 2023 winners morphed into a bit of a bond yield trade and more in the last, whatever it is, six, eight weeks has morphed into a generative AI trade. But our point would be, interestingly, if we look at the NASDAQ, so we have we compute an R-squared stat, stat. just goodness of fit, how good a job are our macro factors doing of explaining price action from whatever we're looking at. If we looked at the NASDAQ from January up until about um, 10 days ago, our R-squared was below our threshold for a macro regime. So that would speak to the fact that in January, NASDAQ was driving off flow. And in February and March, it was trading off the generative AI hype. Now it's back above our threshold. We explained 70% of price action in the NASDAQ, and we have it 5% rich. So our message to people at the moment is the generative AI hype has taken us this far, but it's not the only game in town anymore. There's also macro factors at work, and that's the... The headwind that you're seeing from growth and the reflation dynamic and lower commodity markets, but the tailwind they're getting from moves in bond vol and the yield curve, and you've got to try and weigh all those up. and And that's what that's where back to the original conversation, where AI can help.
1: Hugh, I know you guys are, are, are macro focused. Do you care at all about the micro? Like, do you care the fact that you know we're finishing up earnings season here, and and do you even look at that kind of stuff?
7: Well, our clients do. I mean, we don't have any um, kind of bottom-up um, variables that we model. And that's simply a commercial decision, to be completely honest. It's because you know, that area of the research world is incredibly well covered. If are yep. so many people looking at company fundamentals, there's just no edge there, as far as we can tell. But the way our equity clients would use us is they would still do their bottom-up analysis. They'd look at the target earnings, the Home Depot yesterday, and they would do their kind of bottom-up analysis – but then they'd say, well, we know we're in macro markets as well, so we need to put a macro overlay on top of this as well. And then you get the holistic picture. It's where bottom-up meets top-down. But we only provide one half of that equation, to be honest.
4: Hugh, about 30 seconds here. In your, in your analysis, where does the currency picture fall? Uh, how much of a ripple effect is the dollar's, well, stagnation for now, um, going to have on the rest of the markets?
7: The most interesting thing on the FX models at the moment is actually that um, Eurodollar, and actually this speaks to equities as well, European assets, both European equities relative to the S&P and Eurodollar, Europe is the high beta growth play. It is most sensitive to global GDP improving, to commodity markets rallying, and Eurodollar screens as very slightly rich. And EZU, the um, Eurozone ETF, screens as very slightly rich relative to SPY. So if you think we are about to get the recession we've all been waiting for and global growth is going to turn aggressively lower, then all those trades that have got overweight Europe might need to be reconsidered. Hugh,
1: always good to chat with you. Uh, Different perspective, refreshing perspective from the macro side of the equation. Hugh Roberts, head of analytics at Quant. Insights. Uh, they are based in in the UK in London.
6: You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg
1: 11:30. The next guest I really want to talk to because I'm really interested in, in this fund here. Savina Rizova, Global Head of Research for Dimensional Fund Advisors. Now, I'm a, little, I'm a little nervous here because she has her MBA and PhD from the University of Chicago, which means they really like numbers. And I was told that there would not be math um, on this show, but we'll see what we can do here. Savina, I see Dimensional, when I pull up the stockholders list, I see Dimensional as top, top, top shareholder on a number of big companies. Tell us about Dimensional first. What do you guys do? What's your strategy?
8: Uh, Sure. Yeah. They mention it as combining the best of kind of two words or two ways of investing, uh, the best of indexing, low cost, broad diversification, uh, transparency, with uh, the best of uh, active, systematic active investing, which is pursuit of premiums and a daily flexible uh, implementation process. Um, and we uh, offer kind of that type of approach, both in equities and fixed income. One investment philosophy, many investment solutions.
9: And it sounds like, though, you, you favor kind of the um, indexing over active. Is that right, based on your
8: note? It's a combination, uh, essentially, of the benefits of both. Uh, indexing has a lot of uh, nice features uh, with it. As I mentioned, broad diversification and low cost are the first that come to mind, but also it has cost. And I think in the last 50 years, we've seen the pendulum swing a lot away from traditional active to indexing, which Generally, has been a great trend, but people have also started to perceive indexing as a free lunch out there. It has its own costs. There are rigidities associated with indexing and also lack of pursuit of premiums in general when it comes to plain market index solutions. So we try to basically deliver the benefits of indexing, but also go beyond indexing by focusing on pursuit of premiums systematically day and daily in our investment solutions.
1: So, Savina, I know you uh, at, at Dimensional t- really take a look at r- the retirement business, and you've got a paper out entitled, A Little Goes a Long Way. What do you mean by that?
8: What we mean by that is that in, if people in their uh, retirement accounts, which uh, are, by the way, the largest uh, share of household wealth according to the 2020 U.S. Census, instead of uh, focusing on uh, plain market uh, index solutions, uh, goes for uh, a little bit of a pursuit of premiums within equities, that is, go for a portfolio that systematically, but in a controlled manner, emphasizes smaller, deeper value, more profitable uh, stocks, then they can actually ex- improve significantly their outcomes for retirement, namely more assets at retirement, um, better chance of not running out of money in retirement, and the potential to leave larger bequests. Um, that's kind of what the study focuses on. What can you, how can you improve your retirement outcomes if you move away from playing market index in your equity allocation for retirement to a portfolio that, in a broadly diversified manner, pursues um, the uh, long-term drivers of returns within equities?
9: So, what's the best way for folks listening to try and accomplish that?
8: Yeah. So the, usually, when you have a research paper, even if it has a compelling message, it's hard to act on it um, in okay, the real yeah, world. Yeah. No, not the case with this paper. Um, actually, anybody who listens today to the show, can uh, take action uh, on that because you can switch from a plain index um, for equity portfolio to a systematic active solution in your 401k, in uh, your IRA, in your uh, other taxable accounts used for retirement, even in HSA health savings accounts, which are essentially long, can be used as long-term vehicles uh, saving for retirement. So in all of those uh, types of accounts uh, used for saving for retirement, investing for retirement, you have uh, or you can have options, practical real-world solutions like the dimensional investment solutions in equities that offer that type of approach, focused, balanced, integrated focus on size, value, and profitability, uh, which can improve retirement outcomes. And the other great uh, kind of message from the paper is, these, the findings of the paper apply not only to someone who is very far away from retirement, like age 25, let's say, lots of time to save for retirement. They actually can improve retirement outcomes even for people who are about to enter retirement or who are already in retirement. It's
0: not too late to reap some of those benefits.
1: All right, Savina, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Savina Rizova, Global Head of Research at Dimensional Fund Advisors.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
6: You're listening to The team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All right, let's uh, switch gears. Let's talk uh, energy here. Um, you know, we're talking a lot. We just had the uh, CEO of uh, Bentley on, Bentley Automotive, and they're talking about, you know, transitioning to electric vehicles. And uh, there's obviously huge energy components to all of this. Uh, we're welcome to uh, uh, bring in Robert Picconi. He's the CEO and co-founder of Energy Vault. Energy Vault is a New York Stock Exchange listed public company NRGV is the ticker to put into your Bloomberg terminal. Uh, Rob, thanks so much for joining us here. You joined us here in our our studio. We know you're based out in California, so we appreciate you coming into our studio here in New York. What do you guys do at Energy Vault? Just give us a quick, you know, kind of elevator pitch for Energy Vault here.
2: Sure, we're focused on energy storage uh, and energy storage is going to be fundamental for the deployment of renewables to be deployed in more volume for us to wean our way off of fossil fuels. Uh, Our storage uh, is broad. We use a software platform where we can um, handle short duration storage and integrate that. Long duration, we do that with our proprietary gravity solution. Uh, And we also, as just announced last year, do ultra long duration with green hydrogen. So we broadly play in energy solutions for uh, utilities, independent power players, and also large. Consumers of energy large industrial players
9: and the gravity-based storage feels like a big deal for you guys Can you explain what that is?
2: It's a big deal and it's also big as a as a building Mm -hmm. Um, yes, uh, we uh, Innovated with gravity uh, as a solution for energy storage uh, that would be sustainable, low cost, something that could be deployed quickly and that you could essentially build anywhere you can build a building. So 90% of all energy storage today are actually pumped hydroelectric dams that use gravity. Uh, In that case, it's water that traverses down and turns a motor and discharges electricity. And then that water is pumped back up into the reservoir, into the dam. Um, We came up with a way to use that same gravity uh, and build a structure in a building that you could build basically anywhere, not have the reliance on uh, building dams, damming up rivers, uh, for example, or, or the large cost. And to do that very economically, we have a very low levelized cost to do that, which is a big issue with energy storage's cost.
1: What are you storing actually?
2: We're storing electrons. So we're essentially taking uh, ideally excess wind and solar okay. uh, when it's not needed. So solar typically overproduces during the day because the demand isn't there. Uh, And that Mm. excess wind and solar actually powers the motors and moves these large composite blocks. We don't use concrete in those blocks. They're uh, 25 metric tons each. So that powers these blocks to a height. And then at height, it's all potential energy. So this goes back to your physics classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it can sit there and last literally days, weeks, months. However, it's designed to cycle every day. So when that energy is needed by the grid, uh, for example, in the in the morning, when when we get up and we're using energy, or in the evening when people come home, we lower those blocks, all automated with software, and that turns the motor and discharges that electricity back to the grid.
9: Wow! You got to be really smart to figure yeah, this stuff yeah. out. What that's amazing. That? That's yeah. pretty cool. All
2: right, I have to ask one question because yeah. I know you
1: made an investment. You've got um, uh, something in Rudan, China. Uh, yep. So you're nearing completion of the world's first commercial long-duration gravity energy storage system. I've been dying to meet somebody who's investing in China. What are you doing investing in China?
2: Yeah, by the way, uh, great question, and it's really fundamental. So first of all... Uh, China produces more greenhouse gases than the next seven countries combined, uh, 12 billion tons. Yep. Uh, the U.S., by the way, is second at about five billion. Um, so number one, with our mission of decarbonization, China was going to be important. It's a very large market that's yep. good for investors, uh, unique uh, to disrupt with new technology and to introduce there. We had a, um, uh, a very good leadership uh, partnership with a company called China Tianying that partnered up with the Bush Family Foundation in Texas. Um, to support us with a license to go ahead and build that technology in China and start right away. So they broke ground last year in March and moved very, very quickly. Uh, and uh, we signed a large license deal that will have a royalty component so for all the volume that gets built there. So given the size of the market, given it's gonna be the largest energy storage market in the next few years, and given just the need for the, for the world to decarbonize, it w- became a very strategic um, uh, point for us.
9: It's strategic, but it's still China. Are you concerned at all?
2: Not the way we structured the deal. So we structured it in a way where they invested 50 million dollars in our in our company in the IPO as well. Um, they prepaid 50 million dollars upfront to have the license to deploy it. Um, so, we structured something in a way that financially would, um, I think, help investors get that coverage up front. And I really believe with the partnership, they're a publicly listed company in China. They want to deploy very quickly and protect the technology, hence the investments they made in it. So, a,
1: are you licensing your technology to this Chinese partner?
2: Correct. Okay. Yes. So,
1: okay, I understand. Okay, so what, what are you doing here in the States? What are, what are the growth drivers for you here or just rest of world, I would guess? I'm not sure where you're
2: Sure, all... well, uh, the U.S. is the largest market, so yeah. why don't we start there? Uh, we're doing a lot in the U.S. We had our first year of recognized revenue last year where we did 146 million, but we announced 1.7 gigawatt hour of projects that included short duration lithium ion projects, Uh, as well as a large green hydrogen project with Pacific Gas and Electric, which is the largest California utility. So we uh, are addressing the short duration market because that is the market in in the United States uh, today and will continue to be for the next few years. Um, And in the rest of of the world, we're doing things internationally uh, in India and Australia, uh, and we'll be announcing some other things in other parts of the world as well. We announced some recent license deals as well in, in Greece and Cyprus and Egypt, for example.
1: So is that your primary business model, licensing your technology?
2: Uh, No, that's that's one of the business models we use for our gravity system in particular. Why? Because that's basically a building. So it's a structure you build that's lifting and lowering those weights. So that is a very easy license model. We also build commission transfer. Uh, We'll also own projects and own them in uh, under long-term tolling agreements or power purchase agreements.
9: Does something like the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. make deals more attractive here?
2: Absolutely. Uh, In fact, I'm here in New York this week because I met with the World Economic Forum, and there's a leaders focused on uh, energy innovation. So I'm one of about 30 CEOs that participate in that, and the IRA um, has the world looking at the U.S. In Mm -hmm. fact, other projects in other countries, very interestingly, are getting canceled to come Mm -hmm. here for example, in green hydrogen. So the IRA for us is a tremendous impetus because it's uh, domestic content, our gravity's domestic. Uh, For projects, the benefits are anywhere from 30 to 50%. uh, And it's gonna be great for jobs. And it's gonna be great to make uh, the United States the leader in renewables. So it's having its intended effect.
1: So how would you size up this industry here? I guess it's an energy storage industry, I'm not sure. Yeah. But how would you kind of size up this, this market and kind of where's your place in that market?
2: Sure, it's uh, by 2030 and uh, by many accounts somewhere between 300 billion to 400 billion is gonna be spent. Um, there's estimates that go up to a trillion when you get out to 2040 and 2050. And uh, so it's a, it's a massive market, it's required for renewables to actually replace what is baseload power from fossil fuels. The issue with renewables, of course, is they're intermittent. So if you're gonna shut down predictable baseline energy, you need to have storage uh, to make up for that intermittency when you can't predict when the sun shines or when the wind blows. So uh, it's a massive market. Unfortunately, there are not a lot of solutions in the market. You have lithium ion batteries. Um, They're not ideal, but they're good for short duration. That's fine. They compete with electric vehicles. So you have massive demand the the components come from only a few countries hence this ira act to try to get us more energy independent like what's happening in Russia and ukraine so um it's a it's a difficult problem to solve with electrons we can make wind and solar today for one to two cents a kilowatt hour just versus fossil fuels at five cents fully amortized already built the problem is to store those same electrons which you have to do if you're going to replace fossil fuel it costs five to ten times that in some cases so it's a difficult problem to solve it's a difficult problem to solve sustainably and i would say as an industry and this may surprise you to hear me say this uh, we are behind because things got started late i think the world i think has woken up that we do have a problem it needs to be solved a lot of money now is being invested in a lot of new technologies that can help us and and we're going to be leading the way for sure
1: with the big i'm sorry with the big energy companies have an incentive to do this like is you're a small company recently came public who were the big players here sure. if somebody wanted to play this in addition to your company?
2: Sure, well, there are large players uh, that are playing in here. So, Tesla is one of them that okay. uh, not only for their cars, but they're using those same lithium ion batteries to provide utility uh, short duration um, uh, storage technology. In addition, you have, uh, you mentioned oil and gas with the big players. They have to make their own clean energy transition. So, for example, as investors, we have Saudi Aramco. Uh, that invested in the company, the, the largest energy company in the world. BHP, the largest mining company in the world for the transition they need to make. Uh, and Korea zinc's another one, large non-ferrous metals producer. They made these investments because they're gonna need longer duration technology, long duration storage and saw us as an innovator. So mm-hmm. it's it's happening and the largest companies are looking at investments to help them make that transition.
9: And do you anticipate, in our kind of final thirty seconds with you, how worried are you about the macro environment impacting that investment plan?
2: You know, it's going to continue to be volatile as we see in the in the in the stock market, absolutely. Um, but we continue to see investment and demand coming. In other words, I'm not seeing any drops in demand. In fact, in our last quarter, we announced a forty percent growth in our sales funnel, which already is about twelve billion dollars. So, um, and we announced also. Um, about a billion dollars in new project awards just last quarter so we are not seeing a slowdown in demand from from where we sit Uh, and the ira is going to just accelerate that at least for sure for demand and also profitability in the united states
1: robert thanks so much for joining us really appreciate you coming in here robert Piccone, he's the ceo and co-founder of energy vault again the ticker on the bloomberg terminal nrgv Uh, Very interesting story, I think I learned a lot there about how this whole stuff works. You got to store, it's not just creating the Alternative energy; it's you got to store it. So now I think I got a better understanding of that, uh, and that's what Energy Vault is trying to solve for.
6: You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 11:30.
1: All right, let's bring in our, our next guest. We love chatting with Neil Grossman. He's a former uh, CIO at TKNG Capital. Neil, a million ways to go here. Um, I'm just going to start with, because we had President Biden speaking a little bit earlier. He's now shaking hands, getting ready to, to head over to, to Japan. Um, but he and his friends in Congress, they got to get a debt deal done. And, and my question is, what, what are we going to get if they do agree? Is it just to raise the debt limit and kick this can down the road another period of time?
10: You're very, very intelligent. (laughs) Um, I think that's most likely um, because I don't think the Democrats are going to be willing to go as far as the Republicans want. And, you know, so they're going to have to find some way to get this done. I'll I'll tell you, just as an aside, what I find very interesting, you know, you really want to scratch your head. They put through a $1.7 trillion package at the end of last year with a lot of spending. They had to know that they were going to create a problem for themselves if they didn't resolve this, number one. Number two, there's been a lot of interesting discussion, if you've been paying attention, about constitutional issues, which I'd love to sit down with Lawrence tribe and discuss. But <laughs> what I find very interesting is they could have started to do things like cut expenses about three or four months ago to give themselves more runway. I mean,
9: decades ago. Well, right? well decades. Decades, thing decades with, another with issue. This D.C., right? Like, th- there's not a lot of long-term planning necessarily
10: well you know the entire process this is an interesting thing the entire process for how debt and 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 spending and all these programs are done based on the congressional budget office projections are only 10-year projections Mm -hmm. so what the congress tends to be very good at is dumping a lot of additional expenses into back years so they don't get measured in fact um by the way, I wrote a book about this about 10 years ago called Generation WTF. I'm very much on the side of young people. and um, <laughs> Thanks, Neil. <laughs> the, the act, but the actuarial problems of this country are roughly speaking 200 trillion plus. So you have to understand the government um, GDP is about 25 trillion now, so we've already committed functionally almost 8 to 10 years of gdp already the government spends let's say about five or six years trillion dollars a year so in theory we've spent close to 40 years of of gdp already so i mean the hands are tied significantly and you know look nobody has the willingness to do anything even this mccarthy and biden to start with both said we're not going to touch entitlements well that's 90% of the problem basically mm-hmm. and it's not what they do which is just keep pushing into the back years it's a problem now my guess is roughly speaking the actuarial change in liabilities tied to those to the entitlement pr- problems primarily is probably 4 to 5 trillion dollars a year and so whatever you see being measured understates the accumulation of these problems at, 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 at enormously
1: yeah that's uh, yeah that's just those are discussions that the market i don't really think the market remotely can deal with you
10: well know, they're going to have see. to at some point social security the trust fund Runs out someplace around 2033. I mean, that was a two-year cut from what Dude, they are 2033. fired 2033. Ten years. That's scary. Aye, ay, ay. Yes. So, my, by the way, I've been talking to a lot of young people about so this. So I'm not getting that, am I? You may. I may the a little problem bit bit is the young Maddie's people. not Stop so, pointing so, at me. So, <laughs> so, I got to, So right. my, su- my suggestion is young people should call their congressmen and say, listen, you need a second trust fund. Every penny we put in cannot go into that trust fund. That's not our problem. You tell them to pay for it. Let's set up a fund for ourselves, and we'll be, we'll be accumulating money for our retirements. But, you know, that leaves the other, other fund out of money in a number of years. By the way, Medicare, Medicaid run out, ran out of money in 2015, so those are now on budget as well. Mm. So these are, these are big problems. Two out of every $3, give or take, that the U.S. government now spends is for entitlements. What
9: what is the one thing then that you would want Congress to do specifically to protect my Social Security? Well, (laughs) me,
10: me, I happen to be quite extreme. I think they should shut it down right now. And what they should do, it's not that you can't do things, but they ought to go back and say, look, this is the amount of money we have to spend, and let's get this right. Because to be honest with you, if they work with a cap this way, forget the deficit cap and say, they're going to get a lot more, there's so much waste in this system, right? I mean, I think there's a roughly estimated $150 to $250 billion a year of of, of Medicare medical fraud. That by itself is almost as, you know, would, would provide enormous additional coverage. But you've got to sit there and be willing to say, look, we cannot simply continue to have, our, I call it ostrich economics, and stick our heads in the ground because all we're doing is providing a staggering problem to the future, and that's not really fair. All right. Back down to earth a little bit. Sure. What else are you thinking about? What are you doing in
1: markets? How are you viewing these markets? We just got through the bulk of earnings. We heard from some retailers today, and they're reasonably cautious on the outlook and on the consumer. But what are you looking at?
10: Well, first of all, it's been... We've talked about this for a while. I've been doing reasonably well because I've been range trading and trying to take advantage of volatility. I think we also discussed the fact that there was likely to be some upward migration in prices, which we're having right now. So you know in the shorter run i mean this this debt issue is a concern because i i'm i'm very very flat basically cuz i don't know how this is going to come out my guess is they're going to you're going to, you're going to basically push it to the limit there'll be some real ugly days they'll get it done and you'll be all relatively okay inflation has been coming down the interesting thing to me is it's a little less than i would have expected mm-hmm. you have a couple of more good months of an, of relative comps and so i think that as a concept, Concept gives you because the market likes lower inflation because it thinks it takes the Fed out of the picture. I think the problem is going to be that when we begin to move into the fall, the year-on-year comps with inflation get very ugly. They do, okay. and so because okay. if you go back, I think yes, last right. year, like five or six yeah. months, they were averaging point one a month. We're averaging point three or point four months. So any additional improvement is likely to to go away, and then you're going to have issues which I suspect we have not seen. Um, the full full impact on, on the economic side. So you're going to probably continue to see economic slowing. You're going to probably see some upward pressure on unemployment. By the way, anyone thinks you're going to have a significant rise in unemployment by the end of the year, the only way that's going to happen is if we start losing, a, you know, 100,000 a, a jobs a month will not change the unemployment rate. You've got to go way below that to, to really get a significant rise. So I think you're going to find less progress on that side, economic slowing, upward pressure on on prices, and the Fed is going to have its hands tied unless something extreme happens. So that's sort of my basic mindset for for how I'm going to be approaching the markets for the next six to eight months unless something changes.
9: So with the year-on-year comps for inflation, like you mentioned, and the tight labor market and strong consumer spending, how do we possibly predict that the Fed is going to have this massive string of rate cuts?
10: I think they're out of their mind. I don't think that I don't think. First of all, let's be clear about one thing: the Fed's mandate, and we've talked about this, is zero. They've self-defined it to be two percent, which is fine. They're not going to do anything unless they want to try and change it. And if they change it, watch out for the bond market. Until you get near two percent, but if you have if you have three and a three quarter percent unemployment, which is historically low, even with modest. Remember, the, the growth they report, real growth, is nominal less inflation. Mm-hmm. Nominal growth right now is still quite healthy. And that's one of the reasons I think we've seen less slowing than people think. It's not like we're growing at 2% nominal with 1% inflation to get to 1%. You're growing at like 5.5%, 6% with 4% or 4.5% inflation to get to that, that level. So I, I just think the bottom line in the back, we may not have to see any more hikes. Look, personally, I would have stopped hiking a little while ago, but I think the Fed should be selling assets off their balance sheet, mm-hmm. which they're not doing, not just simply letting them run off. I think I call it quantitative dribble, basically. <laughs> but um, the bottom line is, is that un, uh, until something extreme happens that will force their hand, as long as the economic data is reasonable enough and in prices are still high, you're not going to see them cut rates. At least that's my perspective.
1: Interesting. All right, Neil, thanks so much for joining us. Neil Grossman, co-founder and former CIO of TKNG Capital.
6: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: I want to get right to our next guest uh, in our C-suite conversation today, Anna Bryson. She's a chief financial officer for the company's Doximity, New York Stock Exchange, symbol DOCS, D-O-C-S. Uh, it is a New York Stock Exchange uh, listed stock. Uh, Anna, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, let's start off just real quick. Give me the, the the 20 or 30 second pitch on what you guys do at Doximity. Then we'll get into your, your earnings and kind of the outlook.
11: Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. You know, at Doximity, we are building the leading digital platform for U.S. medical professionals. So we serve over 2 million members, including over 80 percent of U.S. physicians across all specialties and practice areas. So what we're building here is really the physician cloud. We provide our members with digital tools that are built for medicine, which is enabling them to collaborate with colleagues. They can stay up to date with the latest medical news and research manage their careers and conduct virtual patient visits. So we are really focused on making physicians more productive to provide better care for their patients.
9: All right, so just to get it out of the way, a tough morning dropping as much as 11% in pre-market trading. Um, Analysts are looking for a lot of growth in the second half of the year after some product delays. What's the plan to uh, turn those delays into progress?
11: Sure. So we're really proud of the new products that we've launched for our customers. Uh, We think they will be critical to our success over time and contribute to our top line growth. Uh, We are in a regulated industry, so we are facing a few delays in getting the new products live. But if you look at our quarterly revenue curve, uh, the cadence of our quarterly revenue curve that we're guiding to for this year actually looks very similar to last year. So it really isn't that different versus what we've seen in the past. And we're really proud of the fact that we're guiding to another year as a rule of sixty-plus company with 20% top-line growth and 44% adjusted EBITDA margins, uh, which is something in a tough macro environment. I think we're we're really proud of being able to maintain our long-term target of a rule of sixty-plus company.
1: I'm a big fan of subscription revenue businesses, and I see that's a big, big part of of your business. Talk about kind of what drives your revenue. What are the key metrics that I need to get right in looking at your revenue?
11: Sure. Uh, I think one of the key pieces there is our net revenue retention rate. Uh, We've been able to post very high net revenue retention over the last several years. So this last quarter, we reported 117% net revenue retention rate, and that was even higher amongst our top 20 customers. So our top 20 customers had a net revenue retention rate of 124%, which implies that we're actually able to scale the quickest with our largest customers, which we think is a really good indication of of what's to come over the next 5 to 10 years as we continue to, to get more and more large customers.
9: What are some of the biggest um, headwinds that you're concerned about in that same time period, the next five to 10 years, and and how do you plan to kind of hedge against them?
11: Sure. I think from our perspective, uh, while we remain focused on building out tools for our physicians, that is our, our key focus area. Uh, we're less concerned about, about headwinds. I think, you know, we've achieved a record number of QAUs across our entire platform this last quarter. I think if you had asked me this question maybe a year ago as we were coming out of the pandemic, the concern would have been can we maintain the engagement levels on our platform that we saw during the pandemic and today we're we're not only seeing that we're able to maintain the engagement levels,
3: we're actually seeing
11: higher engagement than we saw during the pandemic, which is something that we're incredibly proud of and I think just speaks volumes to our ability to continue to make our platform very sticky. And we're continuing to build new tools. Like we're really excited about the docs GPT tools we're building for our physicians to to help them really, you know, we like to call it cut the scut. So get, get rid of a lot of that day-to-day work that really takes them away from patients. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say you know, our engagement is a, a really strong indicator of what's to come.
1: And it, um, telehealth, that is a, something that not a lot of people were adept at before the pandemic. But, boy, did that change. I mean, I'm not even going to a doctor's office, like, unless a limb is hanging off, you know. I mean, so I mean, talk to us about telehealth, how, how you guys incorporate that in, into your system.
11: Yeah, so uh, we have a telehealth tool that is both voice and video. Uh, We've built it by physicians for physicians, meaning it has a lot of unique features that really help the physician communicate with the patient in a more clinical way and our telehealth tools alone were used by a record 380,000 unique providers last quarter so to put that in perspective there's you know just over a million doctors in the united states so we have very high engagement on our telehealth platform and we continue to build out more than just telehealth other workflow tools uh, that our doctors are using daily to be more efficient in the office
9: you guys have uh, two of the big buzzwords that everyone loves in your description here cloud and AI. Talk to me about mm-hmm. how you're gonna uh, become the go-to when it comes to the healthcare uh, provider that really is nailing the AI space.
11: Yeah, you know we're, we're learning a lot about how generative AI can serve doctors. So the one thing we've, we've started out with here is, is Docs GPT. I think you could think of it as a chat GPT integration with a healthcare twist. So we've developed a library of healthcare-specific prompts, and we've trained the AI on common healthcare-specific documents so physicians can use it to appeal an insurance denial for a patient with a chronic condition, for example. And that's an area that we're continuing to focus in on, and we're we're really encouraged by by the early uh, adoption. And I think at the end of the day, you know, as we think about it, generative AI is very promising, um, but you know it's not without errors, and it should be approached judic- judiciously. So we're enabling the physician to, to test and use this technology and, and provide the appropriate feedback for us to help ensure the best best applications in, in healthcare context.
1: And in your subscription model, who pays the subscription? Is it the doctor individually? Is it the hospital? How does that work?
11: Yeah, sure. Good question. Uh, we are free for physicians. That is very important for us. We are all free for physicians, but we are monetized by health systems and pharmaceutical manufacturers. So those are two key customers where pharmaceutical manufacturers can get information to physicians about clinical trials, for example, and health systems can get information to physicians about, you know, a a new innovative treatment that they might have.
1: So 30 seconds, how's your recession model look? How, How susceptible do you guys think are you to a slowing economy?
11: Yeah, so you know, pharma is a very recession resilient yep. industry, and so while you know, if you, we look at the pharma ETF, uh, I think it's only down about about five percent this year. It's it's a, a, a industry that's that's proven to be very recession resilient. Healthcare in general is recession resilient because the need for life saving treatments doesn't change just because we're in a tough economic time. So we think we have a strong ability to to weather a recession. I mean, you can see that as we're continuing to post north of 20% revenue growth and north of 40% margins.
1: All right, Anna, great stuff. Thank you very much for taking the time and chatting with us. Anna Bryson, CFO of Doximity. D-O-C-S is the ticker.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.
1: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.